Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future. Today is episode nine in our 12 Days of Christmas essay series. And the subject today is Joan Didion's essay, The White Album. At the end of last week's episode on Susan Sontag, I finished by saying I didn't really know where to go with the idea of an erotics of politics. In the meantime, a few people have got in touch with me with some suggestions about what that might mean. And some of it goes back to where I ended last week, which is Donald Trump. Not Trump himself. I haven't had anyone writing telling me that Trump, the man, is an erotic politician. But the Trump experience, particularly the rallies, the crowds, the chanting of lock her up, lock her up, there is something primal about that. And I guess there probably is, though I don't think it was what Susan Sontag had in mind. But I also found another answer to the question of what is erotic politics in the essay I'm talking about today, to my surprise. I hadn't noticed it first time around. It only stood out when I reread the essay this week. The essay is Joan Didion's The White Album. In it, she writes about Jim Morrison and The Doors. And she says of Jim Morrison that he said of himself and his band that they were, I quote, erotic politicians, whatever the hell that means. I have no idea if Jim Morrison ever read Susan Sontag, but I think it's possible, maybe even probable that he did. He was a graduate of UCLA. He had intellectual pretensions, for sure. Joan Didion was a big fan of Jim Morrison and The Doors. She writes in the White Album about them that Morrison himself seemed to offer the possibility of something that existed just beyond a suicide pact, which is a pretty pretentious line. But you know what they say, you should never meet your heroes. And in this essay, Didion describes the experience of getting together with The Doors to watch them in the recording studio. She was a journalist. This was one of her assignments. Go and watch The Doors make a record. And it's a miserable experience. And the reason it's a miserable experience is she doesn't get to watch them record because the night is spent waiting for Jim Morrison to show up because he is terminally late. Frustratingly late, the band are pissed off with him. Everybody is pissed off and bored. It is a deeply unerotic experience. Eventually, Morrison does show up, described by Didion as a man in vinyl trousers with no underwear, also somehow not an erotic image. And when he gets there, he's a bit of a bore. He is a bit pretentious. He talks quite a lot of rubbish and nothing happens because he's constantly talking about the things that they're going to do and not the thing itself. If that's erotic politics, as described by Didion in the White Album, it really is not worth doing. I'm pretty sure that Joan Didion herself had read Susan Sontag. This essay is not in any sense directly referencing Sontag's Against Interpretation, but you can read it, and second time around certainly I did read it, as a kind of companion piece. It is, in many ways, an extension of the argument of Against Interpretation. And it's a sort of inversion of that argument too. Because what Didion is writing about in the White Album is, in late 1960s America, particularly in California, particularly in LA, her part of California, the relentless, restless search for meaning 
everybody trying to make sense of what's going on around them, trying to give it a shape, an interpretation, so that they can live with the chaos. And there being no meaning to be found. There is so much relentless search for meaning that in the end, it doesn't mean anything at all. Didion says, all connections at this time were equally meaningful and equally senseless. If everything means something, then everything means nothing. And it's not as if she then says, because there is no meaning here, we have to focus on form. Because this is, as she describes it, a formless time. It is chaotic. It is arbitrary. And her experiences that she describes in the White Album are themselves chaotic and arbitrary, like watching the doors make a record. Nothing adds up, but no one can live without meaning. So this is why it's a companion piece. She doesn't say, therefore, we should give up on meaning. What she says is, we are all driven by the search for meaning in this increasingly meaningless world. And it's extremely hard to live like that. And she describes in the White Album how hard it was for her personally to live like that. And as a result, this essay is completely different from any of the others that I've talked about in this series in its form, in the way that it's written, because it is itself extremely episodic fragmentary. It's a series of snapshots of things that Didion remembers from that time, late 60s, early 70s, America, California, Los Angeles, when she was a journalist sent on assignments, snapshots of her memories and her experiences. It's not a story. It's certainly not a journey in which the reader is taken from A to B to C to D, because it jumps around. It's B to A, and you think you're in D, and suddenly you're back at C again. Events are described that happen after events that come later in the story. It doesn't add up deliberately, because nothing adds up at this time. And she uses an image for what she is doing and how she experienced this period which is an extension of the image that's at the heart of Sontag's Against Interpretation. This is what Didion says about her version of events. Quote, Flash pictures in variable sequence, images with no meanings beyond their temporary arrangement, not a movie, but a cutting room experience. Sontag in Against Interpretation had identified the movies, and after all the movies are based in California, in Los Angeles, as the place where the avant-garde was finding new forms of expression, because the movies were such a driven, relentless art form, where the, the audience, the viewer, was taken along. And the most avant-garde movies might themselves be a bit like watching something that's been randomly assembled from the cutting room floor. But Didion doesn't say, it's a cutting room floor movie. She says, it's a cutting room experience. No one has put it together. This is the random assemblage of stuff that's lying around. That's the best you're going to get here. If you try and put it together into a movie, you're searching again for a meaning that isn't there. And this pretty disorienting, episodic, fragmentary essay has that character from its very first words to its very last words. So the first words are the title. It is called The White Album. And the title is a reference, a borrowing 
from the title of another pop cultural artefact whose title it wasn't. That is, the Beatles' White Album, which famously was not actually called the White Album. The Beatles' White Album was officially called The Beatles, but it became known as the White Album because it was packaged in such a way that it looked like it had no title at all. It was just a white sleeve with very faintly embossed on it the words The Beatles, and it was designed by the pop artist Richard Hamilton as a deliberate contrast to the album design of Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band by another pop artist, Peter Blake, which was the busiest, most loaded with meaning album cover of all time, endless images of endless famous people in random assemblages with the Beatles at its heart. This one is empty, it's blank, it's white, its title is unreadable. And when it was produced, when it was mass produced, every single copy of the White Album had a serial number, ironically, as a sort of pop culture joke, because there were millions and millions of copies of the album produced. So if you got your album, it was simultaneously a unique artefact. It was number... 1,317,403. But of course, that's meaningless, because if there are that many of them, there's nothing unique about it at all. This White Album, Didion's White Album, is more like a scrapbook than a pop record. But that's where its title comes from, and it has a resonance in one of the stories that Didion tells, which I'll come to. And the last words in the essay aren't words, they're numbers, they're dates. So it ends with the dating of when the essay was written. And the dates are 1968 to 1978. So by implication, this essay took a decade to write. And when you're reading it, there is no way of knowing when in that decade the different snapshots, the different bits of the cutting room floor assemblage come from. Are these memories in real time. Sometimes it reads like Didion is quoting from her own notebooks, and sometimes she is quoting from contemporaneous documents. Sometimes clearly this is being written with hindsight, maybe with 10 plus years of hindsight. There is no way of knowing. She gives no indication of what the chronology is here, what the sequence is here. And part of the arbitrariness of this is that the time frame of the writing of the essay, 68 to 78, does not map on to the time frame of the essay. Some of the things that Didion is reflecting on have their origin before 1968, and most of them are contained in the period 67 to 69, with a few hints of things that happened in the early 70s. So there is definitely some distance here. And yet it's written as though it's happening in real time. It is almost impossible when reading the White Album to work out where you are in this story. And that's a big part of its point. Yet having said all that, within this fragmented, chaotic piece of storytelling, there are events, incidents that do cohere, that give it shape, that give it form, that Didion comes back to. Two or three in particular which appear in different guises. She writes about them in different contexts or she experiences them in different ways. So the Doors passage is just a one-off. It's a night in the studio with this strange and ultimately, I think, disappointing prophet, Jim Morrison. Some of the others she experiences over a longer period of time. They are all products in different ways of either her lived experience in Los Angeles, it's where she was based, or where she was sent as a reporter to cover events. But some of these stories clearly she covered at length 
and for a long time. One of these incidents has an echo of the central event in one of the earlier essays that I talked about in this series, and that's James Baldwin's Notes of a Native Son. In that essay, the key happening was a riot, the riot that took place in Harlem in New York in the summer of 1943 that was triggered by an event, a white policeman shooting, and it was rumoured, killing a black soldier. And as that rumour, that story spread through Harlem, it led to an explosion, a primal explosion of violence. The event that Didion references here and writes about at some length has some parallels with that. It happened in October 1967, and it involved an encounter between two white policemen and a black militant, in his own mind, a soldier, Huey Newton, who was one of the founders of the Black Panthers movement. He was pulled over by a white cop. The white cop called for backup. And then something happened, at the end of which all three men had been shot. And one of them died. And in this case, the one who died was the white policeman who had originally pulled Newton over, a man called John Frey. Newton was badly hurt. The other policeman was badly hurt too. And Newton was arrested and charged and eventually tried for what became voluntary manslaughter. He was convicted. He was jailed. He appealed. The conviction was ultimately overturned. A retrial was ordered. That retrial resulted in a jury being unable to reach a verdict. So another trial was ordered, a third trial. And the same thing happened. The jury was unable to reach a verdict and a fourth trial was eventually abandoned. And this happened over a number of years. So this is a really drawn-out story coming from an event that happened on a single night. I don't think anyone ever really established what happened. Newton claimed that the two policemen ended up shooting at him, and in shooting at him from opposite sides, shot each other. Didion writes about that story in the period between the incident and Newton's first trial, when he is being held. And she goes to interview him, to meet with him, and to report on what is effectively a kind of circus around him. It's become a great cause. Free Huey becomes a, a campaigning slogan. But it's also become an elaborate performance. And she goes to witness it. At the same time, she tries to find out what's really going on here. She's a journalist, and she wants to know who is the real Huey Newton, what might have happened, but also to hear about him, his background, his understanding of himself. And what she discovers is that that's impossible. She can't get anywhere near to the truth of the man or what it is that he represents, because he has become a cipher or symbol of meaning. He is drowning in meaning. Everything he does is interpreted in a way that is deeply portentous, his most banal utterances are treated as revelations. And at the same time, it's all empty. It's just a performance. It's all being carefully choreographed. And the closer she tries to get to him in her encounters with him as a journalist, the more he resists interpretation. He will just give her back slogans. There is a point she describes when, in listening to Huey Newton speak, Newton quotes James Baldwin, and 
Eldridge Cleaver, another of the leaders of the Black Panther movement, who's there in the room with them, writes down on a piece of paper that he then holds up so that Didion can read it. Huey P. Newton is quoting James Baldwin. So you have the act, and then you have the description of the act, just so you know how significant it is. But in the act of writing that down and holding it up as a kind of placard, it's emptied of meaning. In the end, though Didion doesn't draw any explicit lessons, she just writes it. In the end, what the reader is left with is the impression that this is all empty, portentous search for significance, which is so weighted down by its desire to mean something that there's nothing there. And the subsequent history of the trials and the mistrials and the overturning of verdicts and the search for a truth which is completely elusive, though Didion doesn't say any of this, seems to confirm it. She has a similar experience when she is sent to cover the events that are taking place on campuses in the late 1960s across California. It's the great age of student unrest and uprisings, of occupations and takeovers and confrontations with faculty, the protests against the Vietnam War, and students in American colleges demanding a complete overturning of the established order, a new way of doing education, a new way of running America, a new way of being in the world. And these students, young men mainly, they are mainly men, are like Huey Newton, full of slogans and full of an awareness of the significance of what they're doing, the symbolic significance of these acts. And as Didion goes to cover these acts, what she comes away with is a sense that it's a charade. It's choreographed. Everybody is very comfortable with it, including the faculty who are being protested against and the university administrators whose buildings are being occupied. She says everyone understands that this is a performance for the six o'clock news. And what matters is that you get the timing right. Everyone knows the part they're meant to play. And the part that they're meant to play is to treat this as very, very meaningful. But if it's just a part, if it's just an act, then it's not very, very meaningful. It's a charade. And in this essay, there is one other event, which is its central incident. It's the thing that haunts the fragmented story that Didion is telling and gives the whole essay a sense of dread because there is something haunting about the White Album. And along with the performances that she describes, there is throughout her sense, her persistent sense, that she's on the edge of something much worse than any of this equally senseless, equally performative, but not the performance of a press conference or the performance of a student occupation, but the performance of a kind of right of violence. That event is the Manson murders, which happened in August of 1969 in Los Angeles, where Didion was living. Didion and her husband were living in a, a rented house a large rented house in Los Angeles because it was possible to rent large properties cheaply then because there was a slight sense of chaos, as she describes it, around the rental market. And not that far away, another large house had been rented by the film director Roman Polanski and his young wife Sharon Tate. And they had friends staying with them. And in a lot of these large houses, there was a great deal of coming and going. It wasn't clear who lived where. 
wasn't clear that the people who lived in these houses knew exactly who was staying there with them. It was all very loose. In the house that Polanski and Tate were renting while Roman Polanski was away, Charles Manson and some of his followers, the Manson family, were responsible for what became the symbolic act of utterly senseless violence at the end of a very violent decade, the 1960s, and in a year that followed the year of acts of violence, of political violence, for which people were still frantically searching for meaning, the assassinations of first Martin Luther King and then Robert Kennedy. But this was the violence that defied meaning. Tate, who was pregnant, and four of her guests were murdered, brutally murdered. Blood was smeared over the property. Eventually, Manson and his family, members of his family, were arrested, charged, and they were jailed. And people tried to make sense of what this was about. Manson was clearly leading some kind of cult. Why had these people been chosen to be killed? What was the meaning of this kind of extreme violence? And all sorts of wild theories were developed to explain it. None of them actually meaningful. But the most notorious of those theories was what became known as the Helter Skelter theory, based on the original White Album, the Beatles' White Album. It was said that Manson himself had heard the White Album, on which there is a track, Helter Skelter, and it triggered something in his brain and persuaded him that this was the age of the Helter Skelter, which he understood as a coming race war of apocalyptic violence in which he had to take part and he and his followers had to get ahead of it. And so was built an elaborate, notorious theory which entered the popular culture that somehow the Manson murders happened because of the White Album. Again, because Didion never spells anything out. She doesn't mention the connection between the Manson murders and the White Album. She just calls her essay, which includes her account of the Manson murders, the White Album. It is senseless in her telling. There isn't a meaning to it. There is no point in searching for meaning. But what she does describe is as someone who lived in the same place, that part of Los Angeles, at a time when this event happened, that it was experienced by the people around the event, many of whom knew many of the people involved, including some of the victims, as utterly random, utterly senseless, and somehow predictable. Didion says the thing about the Manson murders is that they were obviously shocking and inexplicable. And also, she says, no one was surprised. That sense of dread of randomness, through which people were searching foggily for meaning, had produced a feeling that things were going to happen that were beyond interpretation. And so when they did happen, no one was surprised. And then, though she doesn't say it, the next thing that followed is everybody tried to interpret them. The Manson murders are emblematic of this period for Didion, because their senselessness, their complete arbitrariness, she feels, she felt, it's hard to say which it is, was somehow predictable. So this essay gives a snapshot of those moments, incidents and responses. And the more you read about them, the more fragmentary it gets. Things cohere less the further you go on in this essay. And that's its point. It is about the way the world resists interpretations 
that seek meaning, but also how we can't resist the temptation to make it mean something. But the other reason this essay, I think, is so extraordinary is that it also hints, and with Didion it's always just a hint, at another way of seeing this time, this period in American life. There is another world that's just suggested lying behind this world, because Didion knew, as anyone would know, that these experiences were not universal. Los Angeles is not California. California is not America. America is not the world. She was having a very particular set of experiences as a journalist who was clearly sent to cover the dark side, the far edges of the culture and the counterculture. She had made her name previously covering Height Ashbury. She, she went to San Francisco in the Summer of Love in 1967 and wrote about it in Slouching Towards Bethlehem, describing, most famously of all, watching hippie parents feed acid to their four-year-old child and writing about it with a cool, detached, terrified eye. Didion knew this isn't the whole of America. This is the edge of something. And there is another world, another set of experiences, which are very different. Some of this comes through in the way she writes about herself, because she is not the people that she writes about. When she went to Height Ashbury, she was many things, but the one thing Joan Didion was definitely not was a hippie. She was actually, in many ways, a very conventional person. She had a conventional upbringing. She was quite conservative, both small-c conservative and large-c conservative. In 1964, she was a supporter, a young supporter and campaigner for Barry Goldwater, the right-wing Republican candidate for president who was trounced by Lyndon Johnson, like another young woman of the period, Hillary Clinton, who was also a Goldwater fan in the 1964 elections, and like Didion, was changed by her experiences of the late 60s and the early 70s. But though Didion and Hillary Clinton might have been changed by what happened to them in that period of American life, much of America wasn't in the sense that Goldwater, who was trounced in 1964, became a harbinger of an America that was to come, Reagan's America a conservative America. There is always another America. It is never just California. It's never just the edge of the culture. And part of Didion's genius as a journalist was she came from that world and she somehow captured what it was like to be on both sides of that divide. She had a conventional education. She went to Berkeley. Her journalistic career, the first six or seven years of it, was spent at Vogue magazine. Vogue magazine is not the edge of the counterculture. And Didion conveys in all of this that this is happening to a conventional person. And that's what's disorienting for her. The fact that she knows that for people like her, it's not meant to be like this. And she writes, I quote, my entire education, everything I had ever been told or had told myself, insisted that the production was never meant to be improvised. I was supposed to have a script and had mislaid it. She couldn't find the script. But many other people never thought that America went off script. That is, they were able to carry on with what were relatively conventional lives. The 60s weren't the 60s for everyone. The 60s were different things for different people. There's a version of the 60s in America which is not the counterculture. It leads to 
Richard Nixon's election of president at the head of what he called a silent majority of people who wanted nothing to do with any of that. Didion senses that someone like her should be able to see that script too, but she can't. She's lost it. And her experiences have fragmented the possibility of finding that coherence again. And she also writes as someone who is, in many ways, not just a conventional person, but also quite a domestic person. So she is trying to keep house in this period, and she writes about it in the White Album. She cooks and bakes and cleans in this big house where people are coming and going, and she often doesn't know their names, and some of them terrify her because she doesn't know what they're doing there. But she is trying to hold on to a version of modern life or American life, which is domesticated, and yet it keeps fracturing. She cooks and she bakes and she cleans, and it doesn't hold together, and it doesn't impose order or form on the chaos. But she knows that her experiences are not the universal experience. There would have been people in the 60s who cooked and baked and cleaned and did keep chaos at bay or were required to do those things so that other people could keep chaos at bay. And there is a version of the history of any society where domestic order and the desire for domestic order does win out over the forces of chaos. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Didion also writes about, again, just as a hint on the edge of this essay, another America which was indifferent to the experiences that she describes, not experiencing the world differently. They know what's going on. I mean, America was aware of all of this violence. The Manson murders, when they happened, were everywhere. The assassinations of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy did jolt an entire nation. But there was a part of that nation that just didn't want to know, that just wanted to get on with their comfortable lives. And the hint of this is in one line in this essay, which is quite celebrated, partly because it's oddly haunting. When Didion says, without explanation, because nothing in this essay is explained, that she heard the news of Robert Kennedy's assassination at the Royal Hawaiian Hotel in Honolulu, where she also heard the first stories coming out of My Lai of the terrible massacres that American troops had perpetrated in Vietnam. And she follows that with simply saying she also, at this time, reread the entire works of George Orwell, which I take to mean read about a way of experiencing the world, which was nothing like what she was going through at the Royal Hawaiian Hotel in Honolulu. Later, in notes that she left and in interviews that she gave, she described a bit more about what that experience was in Hawaii that she just alludes to here. And what the experience was was she and her husband heard that Bobby Kennedy had been shot and they were horrified and they also wanted to know what had happened. 
And back then, in 1968, news didn't travel nearly as fast, and Hawaii was pretty cut off. So it was very hard to get the latest information. They had to struggle to find it in this hotel, this luxury holiday hotel. They had to find a TV set that would have the latest news on. They had to try and get access to the newspapers from the mainland. And they found that people didn't really want to know. And she had one very particular experience, which is in one of the nightclubs, the cabarets at the Royal Hawaiian Hotel, when the news of Kennedy's assassination breaks and some people in the room want to commemorate it in some way, want to recognise the enormity of it and want to begin the process of searching for meaning, the audience of American holidaymakers want the show to carry on. They don't want an interruption to their entertainment with the news that Kennedy, another Kennedy, has been shot. And clearly Didion was, at some level, appalled by this, or at least deeply unsettled by it. These are the people who are not searching for meaning in these events. These are the people who don't want to know. And there are always plenty of them too. I was reminded when I was reading this of a picture that did the rounds this summer on Twitter of a cruise ship that's about to be launched, which I think is going to be the biggest cruise ship in human history. And there's a photograph of it, which is like something from a cartoon or from a nightmare of this unbelievably vast ocean liner, which is incredibly colourful. It's a Technicolor vessel. It can carry thousands upon thousands of people. It has, I don't know how many nightclubs and restaurants and bars and sports venues. It's, it's a floating island of leisure. And as various people who posted this photo online over the summer said or implied, it's going to be floating in a world that's on fire. It looks like something from a fantasy of a world gone mad. This is going to float around the world taking people on vacation while the world burns. And in some places this summer literally burns. And as one person commented in relation to this photo, never underestimate the desire of Americans to go on vacation. And something about that line made me think of Didion in Hawaii when Kennedy was shot. And she also hints at another America with one of the characters that she writes about in this book. There's a character who is a bit different from the others. He's, he's part of the pattern of the, the performers, the, the manufacturers of order out of chaos, like Eldridge Cleaver, like, in a way, all the interpreters and commentators on the Manson murders. But he's also a little different. And she writes about him as though he were different, though she never completely says why. His name is Gary Fleischman, and she meets him and gets to know him well, and clearly has a relationship with him over time as a journalist covering a story who then gets friendly with one of the sources. He's a lawyer, and he represented a woman called Linda Kasabian, who was a member of the Manson family, who then became the chief prosecution witness in the trials of the people accused of the various Manson murders. And Fleischmann was her legal representative and therefore arranged the deal by which she became a prosecution witness and also presumably got her freedom. And he is a lawyer. But the phrase that Didion uses to describe Gary Fleischmann is comic realist in a pork pie hat. 
of which the key term here is realist, because she also writes about him as someone who is not trying to find deeper meaning in these events, not trying to interpret them, but simply trying to shape them, to make something out of them for himself. He's also, as she says, a business traveller on the edges, the frontiers of the chaos. He is a businessman. He is making money and he is making a career for himself out of the chaos. And there are always plenty of those people too in any version of this story. There is the chaos. There are the people like Didion who are struggling to make sense of the chaos. There are the people who are determined to interpret the chaos and make it fit their favoured theory, their White Album theory, their political theory, their moral theory. And then there are the entrepreneurs of chaos, the people who are simply making something out of it. And there is one odd moment in the essay that stands out because it's, I want to say because it's incongruous, but the point of this essay is everything in it is incongruous. Everything is meant to jar with everything else. But even within that context, there's something a bit odd about this moment. Again, it's described without much comment as just an example of what it was like to be alive in California at the end of the 60s and the start of the 70s. In this little incident, Didion is driving with Gary Fleischman and they are talking. And at some point, for no apparent reason, he turns to her and says, do you know what the population of India is? And she is struck by the incongruity of this question. It doesn't seem to have anything to do with any of the things that they've been talking about. And he says, no, tell me, tell me what you think the population of India is. So she says what she thinks it is. And, and it is, as she describes, a ridiculously low estimate. She has no idea. And she comes up with a number which is hopelessly out. And he is contemptuous. You don't even know what the population of India is. In other words, there is a world out there. There is a real world. This guy is a realist, a comic realist in a pork pie hat. He knows what the population of India is. Los Angeles is not California. California is not America. America is not the world. And the population of India is not something that is beyond meaning. It is something close to a fact. But Didion doesn't know what it is because she's not thinking about things like that. But for whatever reason... Gary Fleischman is. He's also clearly a bore, like Jim Morrison. It's not much fun driving across the desert with someone who asks you the population of India so that he can tell you that he knows and you don't. But there is just there the hint of another world too, a world where things can be known but aren't known because the people who might know them are so preoccupied with trying to interpret the events that are going on around them all the time. The chaos can also smother the facts. Some of the White Album is pretty dated. It is a late 60s through to late 70s document of a time that had very distinctive characteristics. Some of the descriptions of what it was like to live in California at the end of the 60s and the kind of dopey people who passed through Didion's life, their caricatures of a sort of hippie fantasy of America that feels really remote. But some of it reads as very prescient, very now. And partly, its central theme still really resonates. And its central theme is captured in its very first line, which is probably still the best known line in the essay. It begins by saying, 
we tell ourselves stories in order to live. We are all in the business of trying to find the meaning in the chaos by constructing our own stories. But what Didion means by that is not to empower people. She's not out there saying, you tell your own story, you be the author of your own life. She is saying, in a world in which everyone is telling his or her story, in which everyone is engaged in that search for meaning, the result ultimately will be a kind of meaninglessness. Because if there are that many stories, there will be no story. There will be no story that coheres. All there will be is multiple, overlapping, competing performances. That feels pretty now. There is also in this essay, I think, maybe in the figure of someone like Gary Fleischman, a hint of a thing that is always present, but is particularly present now in American life, including American political life. And here we do come back to Donald Trump. There are the agents of chaos, but there are also the entrepreneurs of chaos. There is the arbitrariness of a world in which everyone is telling a story, an authentic story, but because all the stories are different, none of them are authentic. But then there are the people who exploit that, who can make something of that, who can twist that. In the history of American politics, there is a period that overlaps the one being described by Didion here, which runs from Barry Goldwater through to Ronald Reagan and then to George W. Bush, that period of Republican dominance of American political life in which the agents of a reassertion of a kind of order were the ones who won out. So not the entrepreneurs of chaos, but the people who use the idea of chaos to promote something which is meant to be opposed to it. But that is not true anymore. It's not true of the Republican Party, and it's not true of American political life. It is at least in part now in the hands of an entrepreneur of chaos, not someone who is trying to assert a small c conservative order against the disorder, but someone who simply is in the business of exploiting the disorder, the chaos, to make something new. And Didion captures, I think, in this account of a time in American life where it felt like order was collapsing, but it wasn't. The permanent possibility, you might say risk, that there will be people who know how to turn that into something which is not in any sense conventional and is itself an extension of the chaos. But finally in this essay, and I think the thing that makes it unlike anything else I've ever read, is there is another story too. Behind all of these stories, there is a final story, which is the thing that does, in the end, give it a kind of coherence. And there is a twist to this essay. It has a kind of payoff, because throughout her descriptions of her experiences covering the doors and college sit-ins and so on, and the Manson murders and the follow-up to the Manson murders and Huey Newton. Didion intersperses that with accounts of her own mental state as described in psychiatric reports. So she also reproduces psychiatric reports, which she reveals early on, are about her, because she was also at this time unwell and in the hands of doctors, including psychiatrists, who were trying to work out what was wrong with her. That is, they were trying to impose an interpretation, a meaning, on her fragmented experiences. Her experience of this period as making no sense, as being intolerably chaotic, as having lost the script, 
led her into the hands of a psychiatric profession that tried to pathologize it. And in these reports, she writes how the doctors describe her. They describe her as someone moving through, this is from the psychiatrist's report, a world of people themselves moved by strange, conflicted, poorly comprehended and above all devious motivations, i.e. she's being described by her doctors as paranoid and described by her doctors who seeing things, phantoms, ghosts, people with these strange and devious motivations trying to impose a sense on something which because of her paranoia she cannot interpret. The doctors also say of Didion, their patient, that she has over-intellectualized the world. She is a typical intellectual and her intellectual constructs are collapsing because they are not giving her the meaning that she seeks. So what she describes in this essay, which is precisely that, she's been educated to think she can make sense of this and she can't, is being diagnosed by her doctors as a pathology. And when you're reading it, you feel like, I certainly felt like, I know how this story is going to end. I know what the actually what the moral is here. I, I feel like I know what the payoff is. I'm, I should say I'm completely wrong. But I felt, oh, almost this is going to be that cliche, which is the writer is being diagnosed as mad. But actually, the moral we're meant to take from this is that the writer is perfectly sane. The sane response to this period and to these experiences is to think that the intellectual structures collapse and none of it makes sense. And that what we're going to be told at the end of this essay is that it wasn't Didion who was mad. It was Didion who was reporting, broadly speaking, accurately, a world that had ceased to make sense. That's what I thought it was going to do. But it doesn't do that. It does something completely different. At the end of the essay, we get the diagnosis, what you might call the real diagnosis. It turns out that Didion was very, very sick throughout this period, and her experiences of dizziness and vertigo and migraines, which you could read this essay as going to tell you were caused by living in Los Angeles at a time when the Manson murders were happening not far down the street, was actually caused by her having multiple sclerosis. That's the diagnosis. That's the payoff at the end of this story. She was sick. It wasn't a mental disorder in that sense. It was multiple sclerosis that produces a wide range of symptoms, physical and psychological, and that Didion was trying to make sense of this chaotic period at a time when her body was breaking down. And so then you might think, oh, okay, then this, this story does have something that makes it cohere. Actually, there is a payoff. There is an answer. And she's been holding it, withholding it till the end to tell us, this explains what happened. This explains why it was experienced by this particular person in this way. But she doesn't do that. There's a twist to the twist, which is, as she says, the diagnosis didn't answer anything. And part of the reason it didn't answer anything is because of the nature of the diagnosis. This is what she says about multiple sclerosis. The name she says, was multiple sclerosis. But the name had no meaning. It didn't mean anything. Very little was known at that time about multiple sclerosis. And 
when you read this, you are suddenly struck as a reader by the name. It is multiple. It is many things at once. It's not an answer to anything. If that's the diagnosis, the answer is, it's many things. It's sclerosis. It's non-specific. It is, as she says, the name the doctors give to something that they very, very poorly understand and don't really know what to do about. It is an answer which gives meaning, but it doesn't actually explain. And the essay begins with another naming. At the start of the essay, Didion says, in 1968, she was named by the Los Angeles Times a woman of the year alongside, as she says, Nancy Reagan. And she describes the weirdness of that experience because it doesn't mean anything. What does it mean to be a woman of the year with Nancy Reagan? Everything is being named and none of it means anything. And the essay ends with her being given another name. Now she's not LA Times Woman of the Year. She is Joan Didion, who has multiple sclerosis. And the name doesn't mean anything. And then there is the final payoff, which isn't a payoff. One thing you can do when you are given a name of something or seeking to describe an experience or a trauma when you are what Didion is, which is a writer, is to try and give your own meaning to all of that by writing it out. You have a disease that you don't understand. You have been through a set of experiences that don't make sense to you. You have been traumatized by events that are haunting and horrible, but feel senseless. This is a common human experience. Writers, in theory at least, have the advantage that they can write it out. They can impose their own meaning by writing a book about it. You can write a book about your illness. You can write a book about your experiences. You can try and be the storyteller of your own life. And as a writer, you can publish that. You can have other people engage with it. You can impose your story on these events. You can make it your own. And that is a conventional response, and it happens a lot. In this essay, at least, Didion ends by saying, and I have tried to write it out. I have tried to do the thing that a writer can do, which is to make sense of my experiences by writing. And she says, it hasn't worked. To find out more about this podcast, do please follow us on Twitter at PPFIdeas. Tomorrow, we've reached day 10 in the 12 Days of Christmas essay series, and my subject is going to be David Foster Wallace's essay, Up Simba. This has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. <laughs>